and I thought that I was going to be a professor. But one of the one of the initial one one of many uh, initial setbacks that I that I had early on was that I got my master's degree and I was just you know fully expecting to go on to a doctoral program. But what I didn't count on was that I didn't get into any of the doctoral programs that I applied to. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep, deep knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you're ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at MentorBox.com today. There, we upload courses from experts like today's guest, Dory Clark. Dory is a speaker, marketing consultant, and author of three books, the most recent of which is called Entrepreneurial You. She teaches, writes, and speaks on branding, marketing strategy, executive leadership, income diversification, networking, and much more. Her clients include Google, Sony, Boeing, and many others, and her writing has been featured in Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Inc., The New York Times, and, you guessed it, many, many more. Her personal backstory is one of remarkably fast-paced, eclectic achievement, and we frame it as a case study of her own teachings in today's conversation. Dory has something to teach to virtually every kind of professional. I hope you enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today I'm speaking with Dory Clark. Dory, it's wonderful to have you speaking with us today. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Tyler. Great to speak with you. I am really excited to have this conversation with you because uh, I was introduced to you via Christopher Kai, who we did a a series of lectures with on a podcast with about a month ago. Um, I was actually just working through some of his footage uh, the other day, and it was it was a really great connection. You know, he's met a lot of big names. Kind of his whole purpose in life is to is to meet big names and teach others how to do the same. Um, and he introduced you and I, and I quickly started to do some research. And your story is one of the most fascinating that I've encountered in all of the people that I've, that I've interviewed or worked with at mentor box. And it starts when, um, you were very quite young, actually, you graduated from Smith college, Phi Beta Kappa at 18 years old. Is that true? Uh, that, that is true. Yes. That, that, that blows my mind. I, I want to, can we start there? Is that okay? If we start in your, your late teen years and kind of, um, discuss how that may have resulted in where you are today, because, from the the bio on your webpage, it it says that you kind of wanted to jump in and, and start with the real world at that early age, and you wanted to, you know, just get ahead, get your education, and then get out there into the world. But you managed to do that in such a such an a, fa- a fashion of excellence. And I'm curious as to whether you actually had a good idea of what you wanted to do when you were just a teenager, achieving at that high level. 
Oh, well, first of all, thank you. But uh, yeah, it was really a very iterative process. Um, I, I remember feeling very confused at the end of college because whatever I wanted to do, it was sort of nebulous. Um, it just, it's, it really seemed clear that there was not going to be a manual for it. You know, if you want to go to, you know, be a lawyer, be a doctor or whatever, it was a very clear path to it. And I did not feel like there was a clear path to doing what I was interested in, which at the time, the sort of way that I described it was, um, I was, I was interested in, in something that would kind of be like a hybrid between Tony Robbins and George Stephanopoulos. And, uh, you know, Stephanopoulos uh, has gone on to have a career as a, as a newsman, but, uh, but at the, at the time he was best known as being president Clinton's communications director. So I was interested in, in very, you know, similar things. I was interested in business. I was interested in politics. I was interested in communications. So, uh, I just, I didn't know how to put them all together. And I kind of had to find my way to it. Do you feel that you've achieved that today? I, I, I don't want to harp on this too much, but I'm just curious. Do you feel like you're you're still on that quest to get to that place, or do you feel like you, you're pretty much in that space now? I feel I feel like I'm in that space now. I, I think I've I've been able to make a uh, a good blended career for myself, but but it, it involved a lot of fits and starts. And in fact, my first book, Reinventing You, talked about this quite a bit uh, because it was a very evolutionary and iterative process. I started, I went to graduate school for theology. I became a journalist. I got laid off as a journalist. I uh, worked in politics as a spokesperson on a governor's race and a presidential race, and we lost both of them. And then I ran a nonprofit. And, you know, finally I started my own business and I managed to iterate and evolve my business over time into what it is today. But it, it, re- it really did take me a while to, to get there and to figure it out. Yeah, that is a wildly eclectic selection of, of things that you did. I, you, so you have a degree in theology, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Masters of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School. Okay. Wow. And then, and you, you basically ran, or you were a campaign spokesperson. Is that the title that you had? Yeah. The, I guess the technical one is I was a, a press secretary on the governor's race and I was the New Hampshire communications director for, uh, for Howard Dean's presidential campaign. So I was in charge of all the communications around the New Hampshire primary. Really? Were you in New Hampshire at that time? I was. I spent a couple of months uh, working in Burlington, which is where the campaign's national headquarters was. And then I spent the rest of the campaign uh, working out of New Hampshire. Where in, where in New Hampshire were you? I'm curious because I grew up near New Hampshire. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, we were, we were in, in Manchester. That's where all the, all the campaign headquarters were. But uh, okay. the campaigns had field offices all over. So if, cool. uh, yeah. if people are from a small town in New Hampshire, odds are I have, I have been there uh, because <laughs> we just we traversed the state. Wow. That's, that's a lot of fun. New Hampshire. I, so I grew up on the border of New Hampshire in Massachusetts, but my mother was raised in Nashua. Uh, my dad lived in Exeter for a while. I spent a lot of time in Manchester. So that's cool. Nice little connection there. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> where where did you grow up in Massachusetts? 
the town was Amesbury. Oh, well, yeah, it's right on the border. I, yeah. <laughs> I lived for a long time in, in Boston and was, uh, was very involved in Massachusetts politics. So uh, oh, I served okay. on the Democratic State Committee, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I also have traversed uh, – and you know, when you're on a governor's race, you have to go to a lot of different cities and towns, all 351 of them, incidentally, which is a fun fact that I have really? retained – even to like the ones that are basically New York, we're way over in the West with like Adams and West Adams or whatever they are. Out yeah, there absolutely. The My Berkshires. favorite is Florida, Massachusetts, which I always... Florida, Massachusetts. I, wow. I, yeah, I, I find that to be just cruelly ironic, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the Cape, right? No. That, that is the Florida of Massachusetts as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's true. Florida is a little town out route, route two in the Berkshires. Wow. That's funny. Cool. That's a nice little connection. Um, but I, I'm still astonished by the fact that you have the the Harvard Divinity School Masters of Theological Studies, and then you ended up in in politics like that. I mean, they aren't uh, you know totally divorced as as we all know and uh, and see in our country and in political discourse these days. But what uh, can I ask? You know what um, what led to your going for the the theology masters originally? Yeah, I was I was originally interested in a career in academia, and I thought that I was going to be a professor. But one of the one of the initial one one of many uh, initial setbacks that I that I had early on was that I got my master's degree, and I was just you know fully expecting to go on to a doctoral program. But what I didn't count on was that I didn't get into any of the doctoral programs that I applied to, and oh. I did I didn't have a plan B. I thought that I would get into one of them at least. Um, so that blows my mind that you didn't get in after all that you achieved prior to that. That's yeah, that's, I was I, <laughs> I was I was surprised and upset, and so I, I had to come up with another uh, plan for myself pretty rapidly. So that was really kind of the first uh, the first reinvention that I had to undertake. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And do, did you go straight into journalism after that and then end up in politics? Was that the route that you took? Sort of. I I figured that I needed to get a deep dive in professional experience. And so, you know, I had done internships during, during college and things like that, but I, I figured I needed a little bit more background and also making more connections in uh, Boston where I was living at the time. So, I spent a few months interning for a state rep uh, at the state house in Massachusetts, and then I spent a few months as an intern at Boston Magazine, and those were actually, you know, really helpful because they both led to jobs. I became the campaign manager for the state rep when he was running for re-election, and I uh, from the Boston Magazine gig, I managed to get enough clips, uh, you know, this sort of the journalistic parlance for samples of your work uh, that I was able to get my first paid journalism job uh, as a political reporter, local political reporter for the Boston Phoenix. Oh, yeah. The the now defunct Boston Phoenix. Yes, exactly. So I, yeah, I I went to BU. Um, I had Tons of friends that actually interned at Boston Mag, and one or two of them actually ended up uh, working there after interning, um, and they all got a good selection of clips as well. And they've since gone on to uh, do some really incredible things. So yeah, I'm very familiar with. Um, I mean, I I spent seven years in Boston actually, so um, I'm familiar with the the journalism 
situation there, I worked on the, the BU newspaper and a lot of other things as well. So ah, there yeah, we go. A lot of cool connections. Yeah. So we, we've kind of covered that, uh, that George Stephanopoulos side of things, but, but Tony Robbins, which is the other one that you mentioned, that seems to be where you are now. I think you're more on the Tony Robbins end of, of things. Is that safe to say? <laughs> well, you know, what you're doing professionally, I, uh, I've, I've, I've never been, uh, you know, that, that successful at, um, <laughs> you know, screaming on stage and You've never uh, been six immer- foot seven and not six shouting seven, and waving your hands. not immersing myself in cryo baths every day. Uh, so yeah. he, he does a few things that I don't do, but, uh, but I've, I've remained impressed with his, uh, focus on an ability to, to help people really, be able to lift up their their thinking in such a way that they realize that new things are possible for themselves. And so uh, certainly in, in the professional realm that I operate in, um, my coaching focus area is largely around uh, working with talented professionals to help them become thought leaders in their field. And so that's, that's really a process in a lot of ways of – showing people a new reality that's possible and trying to give them tools to get there. Um, so I, I certainly do follow his example. So are you then seeking to work primarily with individuals uh, for that specific goal of, you know, kind of ramping them up to that level of thought leader? Because uh, I, I know that you do a lot of speaking, you know, to groups um, and, and that sort of thing. But is it your primary goal to really help people at the individual level take themselves to that higher, uh, you know, thought leader level, that, that level of leadership in their sphere or in their realm? Is that your primary goal? So you're actually, uh, you're, you're sort of helping us segue into the, the next, uh, the next useful thing, Tyler, which I appreciate, which is kind of goes into my new book, Entrepreneurial You, which is a a book about how to create multiple income streams in your business. And that is something that I, I certainly have tried, uh, to, to both practice and preach is something that I've cultivated. And so it's correct that the executive coaching work that I do, uh, is aimed at, at individuals and it's focused you know, pretty, pretty tightly. You know, there's a lot of people who are sort of general executive coaches, but my work is very specific in terms of, um, working with people to, to help them become recognized experts and thought leaders in their field. Uh, but I, I also do a lot of, uh, other things. And so if we're talking about my speaking work, uh, and I, and I do speak pretty frequently, it is often to corporations. And, uh, and so I, I focus in a lot on, uh, on those questions, I'll speak to, to corporations about you know, networking strategies, about personal branding for their employees, about um, how their employees can gain more influence as leaders, uh, things, things along those lines. Um, so I, I definitely try to, uh, to be diverse with my income streams, which I think is both a good risk mitigation strategy and it <laughs> enables you to tap a little bit more of the upside as well. Of course. So I think there's some some nuance and some gray area here, obviously, but I think that what you are doing and what you've dedicated yourself, your life to doing is a little bit different from a lot of the folks that MentorBox has dealt with in that we have a lot of people who have written books on um, how to work as teams uh, or as leaders to develop cultures and ultimately the focus or like the locus of change that they often pinpoint is the more 
collective, um, even if it's, you know, targeted toward executives, it's often seeking to help change the collective or the company culture or in some way, uh, the broader picture where, whereas it seems that even though you may be targeting groups or you may be talking about groups, um, talking to groups or about groups, you're still thinking about improving the individual, whether it's that personal branding lens or whether it's through the, you know, just the income lens, that sort of thing. Um, am I, am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do, uh, spend a lot of time focusing on what people can do as individuals to take control of their career. I write pretty frequently for the Harvard Business Review. Um, they're actually the publisher of, of two of my books, including the most recent one, Entrepreneurial You. And they have a, a section in their magazine and, and in their blog that's known as Managing Yourself. And that is, uh, that's typically the area that I write for. Um, it's, I, I think that change at the enterprise level, um, you know, managers working to be more efficient and, and, you know, build, build better, stronger teams. It's incredibly valuable, but I, in terms of my own work, I like to focus the dialogue around things that, that people really have full control over themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately that's what MentorBox is seeking to achieve as well by, you know, offering a platform that allows people to choose and educate themselves uh, based on what you know they need or what they are have been tasked with at their job, and I think it's pretty deeply philosophical why we emphasize that sort of thing. Even though we have folks that obviously teach toward the cultural and collective end, I think it's pretty important that individuals see themselves as individuals within a system, whether it be you know a social system, a, an entrepreneurial system, or you know the company, the organization that they're within. Is this something that you always have felt strongly about is working from that individual level first or did you kind of happen upon this in some way? Um, I think that it's it's a, a little bit uh, a both. I partly um, – my topics chose me in some ways. This is a process that I uh, that I talk about actually in Entrepreneurial You because I often hear from professionals that uh, are entrepreneurs that really want to be making a difference. They want to help people. They want to create a great product or service, but they're they're just they have a lot of ideas and they're not sure what they should be focusing on. And they're, sometimes they just like banging their head against the wall. And what I often tell them is, you know, you are trying to find a solution and it's really hard to do it on your own. Why don't you let the market choose? And that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have any say in it or that you're sort of abdicating responsibility. I think it's very important for people to uh, sort of set the parameters of what they're interested in or where they think they can add value. But I also think that um, that it's it's really hard for people to guess what other folks would find interesting or would, would find valuable. And so if you are somebody who's creative and, you know, it's not like a slam dunk, what exactly you want to focus on, maybe you have three different ideas that, that all seem equally plausible to you. If that's the case, I am a huge fan 
of doing small experiments, uh, you know, as they say, the the minimum viable product to try to to see what catches fire. And so in my own world, I had really wanted to uh, had really been wanting to write a book for for quite a while. And in fact, in 2009, I wrote three different book proposals, pitched them to publishers, was not getting traction anywhere, um, mostly because they they said at the time I did not have a big enough platform, so to speak, um, that I was not famous enough to write a book yet. <laughs> and so I needed to go somehow work on that before I could get a, a book contract. Yeah. Um, but what uh, what ultimately ended up happening was I said, all right, fine. So I, I went back to square one, started blogging pretty frequently, um, worked my way into blogging for the Harvard Business Review. And one of the the first pieces, I think, I think it was literally like the second piece that I ever wrote for the Harvard Business Review was called How to Reinvent Your Personal Brand. And we published it. And shortly after it came out, it, it did well. It was a popular post. And so they asked me if I would consider uh, expanding it and turning it from a blog post, which is about 700 words, to a magazine piece, which is about 2,500 words. And so I agreed to do that gladly. And uh, then I, when it came out in print, I had this crazy experience because I had been trying for years to get agents or publishers interested in my books and no one was interested. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> three different literary agents that week reached out to me and said, oh, hey, wow. this is really interesting. Would you Have you considered turning it into a book? And I thought, oh my God, finally, there's a topic that people are interested in. And, and, you know, by that point I had a sufficient platform because I was writing for HBR. And so, uh, you know, I was, I was more than happy to take direction from the universe. And so I said, all right, this is what people are interested in. Great. And so, uh, and so that is how, uh, personal branding and professional reinvention really came to be my, one of my areas of focus. It was, uh, it was probably one among many topics that I could have spoken about reasonably well, but it mm -hmm. was, it was the one that the people were most interested in. So I went there. So you made it from a 700 word piece to a, well, like 50,000 word piece or something yeah, along those exactly, lines. <laughs> exactly. That's incredible. But ultimately it was the second piece that you wrote for HBR. So it must've been something that was, you know, in your repertoire as something that you were confident with and and strong on because otherwise you, you probably wouldn't you know publish that in hbr as like an early piece you, you start strong to prove that you you know what you're talking about right yeah so. that's that's exactly right so i mean i'm, I'm certainly not saying that people should kind of you know li literally pick a dart out of nowhere and throw it at a wall but yeah, of uh, <laughs> but you but but yeah there's there's often multiple things that theoretically could work and so uh you know, with with that in mind, you can you can sometimes just um, hunt around and, and see what's getting a response. And I think in my case, it could have been probably any of three things, five things, whatever. Uh, but because this was the one that stuck, I doubled down on it. Hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Dory Clark, but I want to let you know where you can learn more about self-reinvention and entrepreneurship. We record videos regularly with highly successful entrepreneurs and authors just like Dory Clark. But, per usual, those courses are exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want access to those and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com today. Okay, back to the show. What I'm curious about is, how did you decide on those first 
three to five topics that you that you may have been able to you know write your first book on uh, that made say your first few HBR articles. Um, you know, you've done a lot of research, you've done a lot of studying as a student, and you've worked in some very active public fields as well. So I'm particularly interested in this, in the topic of reinvention. Is this something that's mostly a part of uh, your personal experience? Because obviously you've done some, I mean, reinventing might be the word, but you've done some, you know, moving around, working in different realms, studying in different realms. But did you actually spend a lot of time, you know, interviewing others who had maybe had the same, a similar experience or doing any research on, you know, self-reinvention, working with others who had experienced that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I definitely did. I mean, the, the germ of the idea for it came from my own experience in that, you know, I was I was a journalist and then I got laid off and then I went to work in politics and we didn't win. And, you know, there's, there's all these, these sort of forced reinventions that I had to deal with. And so it got me interested in the topic. But also, I, I think as a product of my training in journalism, there's a mantra that, you know, you probably know from the, from the free press that... Uh, that they beat into you, which is that you are not the story, you know, take yourself <laughs> out of the story. And yep. so I didn't, you know, I, I, I was interested in it because of myself, but I actually didn't think of my own experiences as even being relevant to the, to the book or to the, to the, the discourse around it. And so I interviewed, um, you know, several dozen people that I thought had interesting reinvention stories and I profiled them and I built the book around them. And it, I actually had to be kind of cajoled by my editor who said, Dory, you know, don't you have experience around this? Why don't you write about your, your own experience? <laughs> I was going to say, you have a great story to tell. <laughs> Why not tell it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, and, but I was very, uh, like surprised and resistant. I'm like, oh, is anybody going to care about this? I don't know. It just, it felt really weird. Um, so that, that was kind of a, like a tick that I had to get over, um, from that journalism background, you know, our, our training, you know, serves you well in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, I was able to write pretty clearly. I was able to write pretty fast, but that was one area where I, I had to really override my pre-existing programming. And, you know, now for entrepreneurial you, that's a book where I put myself much more, in the narrative, uh, because you write this book about how do you develop multiple income streams in your business? Um, it seems like, you know, you might, you might as well test them out yourself. It's, it's, it's a lot more credible if you can actually say to people, oh, well, I tried X, Y, and Z, and here's what happened to me as well, rather than just, you know, blindly citing other people. And so I made myself kind of a, a central actor in the book. And I got just this enormous amount of positive feedback from people who said that they appreciated hearing, you know, what, what went well and then what went really wrong uh, in the process that I shared. But that, that was a, an evolution for me of getting comfortable being able to include myself and talk about my own story. Mm-hmm. Our stories, I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm only, you know, 25 years old and I've only been working for three years now out of college, but I, I feel like our origin stories maybe are somewhat similar. Uh, small town North Carolina is different from small town Massachusetts, but I, again, I was on the border of New Hampshire and I think politically they, they could have been somewhat similar, but I, I went to school with a vague idea. I went to college with a, a vague idea of what I wanted to get into. Um, I knew that it was something in the realm of communication. I always thought, you know, it's between 
a, a screenwriter and a journalist somewhere in there, maybe just a comedian. I wasn't really sure, but I feel like I had a couple identities that I was working between the same way that you had Robbins and, and Stephanopoulos. And, you know, I, I did dabble in journalism um, and now I'm kind of working in the realm of communication. But what I started with in college was English literature because I wanted to, and it, it's what I have a degree in as well. I wanted to ultimately study other people's stories from a diverse array of backgrounds and almost use fiction and uh, literary analysis as a way to help me kind of discover how to pursue identity and and purpose and things along those lines. Um, did, what was your undergraduate degree in? I did philosophy. Okay. So I, I feel like maybe we had the same idea going into school in, in some way. I actually was on the on the fence of philosophy for a while as well. Yeah, um, I should have done English. It was it was a <laughs> it was a mistake. I I was going to do a, a dual major and then I, I transferred midway through and it would have been too hard to kind of match up the credits for both. So oh yeah. Pick. So I, I picked philosophy, but I wish I had done English literature. It was a good call, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> and you made but you made all these decisions when you were like what, 17 years old or something like that. So <laughs> that's that's quite impressive still. But I, I also thought for the longest time that I wanted to be an academic. And I, I, I think very seriously that I conduct most of what I do um, in, in the frame of academic research. You know, I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of analysis. Um, and I write with a very verbose, obnoxious tone of voice sometimes. But I do think that that frame of thinking, um, you know, that I, the way I think of academia in a lot of ways is like seeking the edge of, of knowledge about topics that are out there and trying to kind of poke a hole in that edge with your own, you know, dissertation, your own thesis, if you're going for your, like a master's or a PhD. And ultimately I kind of exited that, uh, to work in publishing right after I graduated from undergrad. But what you're, what you seem to be doing now, because you're writing books and because you're doing all these things is you're kind of poking a hole in that realm of, of entrepreneurial self-development. And I, I'm wondering if this is if this is like you, you've already said that you're kind of, you know, you're on that path right now, but did you see in, when you wanted, to, when you were thinking of that, you know, Stephanopoulos, Tony Robbins identity, did you think that you would be writing books of this nature? You always wanted to write books. Did you think that you would be helping people in this way? Or were you, were even then, were you thinking I, I, there's something out there and I just had to figure out exactly what it is make it stick and then double down on that. So kind of, this is a convoluted question, but what I'm asking is at the outset, did you know that you wanted to write books that would help people kind of at that individual level, self-help, you know, sort of self-development type books, something along those lines. Did you think about that early on? I think I was, I was interested in that, in that realm for sure. But I, I hadn't, I hadn't locked it down. I was, I was very interested in politics and activism and advocacy. So I maybe could have gone in that direction. That would have been plausible for me, but yeah, I did, uh, certainly from a young age, I mean, probably from the time I was whatever, five, like I was just so fascinated with writing and books. Like I would write short stories all the time. And, uh, I, I did have a very amorphous desire to write a book of some kind without uh, necessarily knowing what my ultimate area of expertise would be. Were you thinking nonfiction at that time, even like when you were young? I mean, I feel like 
young five-year-olds don't always read a lot of nonfiction, but <laughs> did, did you just know that you wanted to like have a, a book in your hands that you could say that you wrote at a very young age? Like when do you think you realized that you might be writing nonfiction? Um, so yeah, early on, I think, I think I was, I was doing, uh, fiction more. I, I recently moved, I just bought a new condo. And so I have been going through all these old papers and trying to file them, which has been this incredibly onerous task. But I, I recently came across, uh, one of, one of my earliest, uh, pieces of work, very exciting, uh, but created on a typewriter when I was like, you know, probably wow. I don't know, I don't know, seven maybe. And it was, <laughs> uh, it, it was, it was kind of amazing, Tyler. It was, uh, it was a spy story, uh, inspired Ooh. by James Bond, who was, you know, my, my favorite. And it was about two, uh, very adventurous brothers named Rex and Bill Bond. And they were trying <laughs> to find, uh, they, they, they discovered a shipment of drugs hidden in some sheepskins. That was my, <laughs> I don't know where I came up with that. So like 001 and 002, <laughs> <laughs> they're all just brothers. That's what we didn't know about the, the MI6 agents. <laughs> I, I, I think you got it. That's right. So I yeah. like that. I, I actually wrote very similar stories when I was not quite seven. I probably started writing these in like you know, mid middle school, but I also loved James Bond back in the day. And I wrote a bunch of spy stories too. So you're basically just saying we're the same person. I gotcha. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I want to dig into what you were doing in undergrad again. Like, I feel like this is drastically different because you were, you know, Smith college and I was at BU. They are drastically different places. Even Smith is in Massachusetts, right? It is. Yeah. So, I mean, same state in a lot of ways. I think they're both deeply liberal schools. Um, but Ultimately, philosophy and English, I feel like we probably had the same, some, some form of the same idea going into school. And I, like I said, I was ultimately looking for how to formulate identity into a purpose and how to just, just understand the world better. Because growing up in a small town, I felt like I really didn't get what was going on beyond my own little bubble of about 15,000, which isn't, you know, a super small town. But what exactly were you seeking when you started to study philosophy? I know you maybe wish that you could have gotten out of it, but what was your initial goal? Can you think back to when you decided to study philosophy and maybe explain what you were thinking there? Well, I, I think my goal was probably twofold. Um, one was in my middle school, like my junior high, there was, you know, there's all these vogues and fads and whatever in education. And at the time, one of the big things that was being talked about, which my school kind of got on board with wholeheartedly, and which I actually uh, have a great deal of sympathy to, because I, I do think it was very useful, was there was a book that was written called Cultural Literacy by a guy named E.D. Hirsch. And it's uh, it's it sometimes gets caught up in these like kind of culture war debates because um, his, basically his assertion is that every student needs to have a grasp of what he called, you know, sort of the, the basic principles of cultural literacy. You know, if you, if you talk to people about, um, you know, Alexandria, for instance, uh, if you're going to be a fully functioning member of society, you want to make sure that when someone hears Alexandria, they're like, oh, uh, the ancient library, you know, like you, you want them to just like sort of know this common body of stuff. And of course it gets wrapped up in questions about, okay, well, you know, it's sort of this like wet, you know, very Western, uh, version of history, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. Like what is the canon and that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. Should there even be a canon, that question, it's 
himself. Totally. But nonetheless, I agree. He is correct. It is useful to know. And <laughs> uh, and so I really felt like all these philosophers were very canonical. And if I wanted to understand modern thought, uh, that it would be really useful for me to be conversant in them. So I, I think that was a piece of it. And then above and beyond that, you know, like a lot of teenagers, I had sort of big picture existential questions. And I think, you know, philosophy is a great place to look for it. What actually made it ultimately disappointing for me was discovering that, um, the way that, that philosophy was done at the first school that I was at, which was Mary Baldwin College, now Mary Baldwin University, uh, which has this early entrance program that I joined, they did so-called continental philosophy, which really focuses a lot more on these kind of like big picture meaning of life type questions. And then I got Smith and philosophy there, I discovered to my shock and chagrin, was done much more in what is known as the uh, the Anglo or the analytic ph philosophical tradition which is how it's done in the vast majority of schools in America. Um, and it's basically like philosophy as logic or philosophy as uh, kind of cognitive psychology or, or neurobiology. And it was just, it was not, it was not what I signed up for. It was not what I was interested in. And so I kind of felt a little bit robbed because I didn't realize that the discipline would be done so differently. Interesting. Wow. So you, you transitioned from one program to another in the same discipline and you realized was this sort of a harsh realization that the discipline wasn't you know a positive thing or like did you not really maybe understand at that age that how you're studying something at you know the university level might not be the only way to do it because that's how I felt I encountered English literature is I I started with some very old guard professors who taught just very canonical things and even um, a very simple sort of style of literary analysis. And then I encountered more modern, even like revisionist type courses and more um, less formal and more like structuralist type courses as well. And I just didn't even understand that stuff until like over a year of studying. And I realized, oh, so like we can think about these things in different frames and you don't just get a book that's in the canon, a famous book and say, and study it until you realize this is what it's telling me, that sort of thing. So I felt like I hit a sort of a wall where I was like, damn, I got to reframe how I think about written things before my time. Did, is, is this what you're saying you sort of encountered or was it more that you were aware of it, but you had to switch it up to follow a new frame in the new school that you entered? Yeah, I think I think the latter that um, that it, they were just approaching it in wildly different ways. I mean, it, it was it was literally almost like a different discipline. They just it was just yeah. so uh, so different, and so I. I, but you pursued it. You did finish that degree, right? I, I did. Yeah, I was I was kind of in too deep, you know, as it yeah. as it were with a major. And so um, I was like, all right, I just got to muscle through this. But it's not it's not what I would have chosen. I mean, I suppose that it was probably good for me to, you know, like take the take the logic class to yeah. <laughs> you know, do all the, you know, blah, blah. OK, the sort of like super dry um you know, epistemological, whatever. But, um, but yeah, I, I was wishing that I was able to spend my time doing something different. Uh, and you know, my other classes at Smith were very exciting. And so one of the things that led me to div school was that, um, I, 
because I was feeling a little bit ripped off with philosophy, I started taking some religion classes thinking, well, maybe this will be more like what I want. And I, I actually really enjoyed the religion classes. And so that uh, got me on the path that ended up with me going to div school. Mm-hmm. So with all of this, this backstory and all of this incredible achievement, what kind of things do you think you have become most uniquely capable of of helping people resolve? Are there patterns that you see in your clients and in your audiences uh, that you are, you know, best able to address or most directly able to assess and help people resolve? Well, I would say that um, one big thing that uh, that people come to me for now, which I think I'm able to be pretty helpful with, is I. I built my own business, you know, pretty, pretty successful business really from the ground up. I mean, I, I started my business when I was 27 and I didn't have a lot of, uh, I didn't have any corporate contacts to be honest. I mean, I had, I'd been a journalist, I'd been in politics and I'd run a nonprofit. And so I knew people who did all of those things, but they're not the people that are going to hire you. And, uh, they're not lucrative connections. And so I had to build a network and establish credibility in those areas when I had never done them. Um, and so how do you, how do you get corporate leaders to listen to you when you've never worked in a corporation? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting <laughs> question. And, uh, and how, you know, how do you position yourself to be a, uh, an elite provider when the clients that you initially have are, you know, nonprofits that are paying you 50 bucks an hour. So I worked through those problems and solved those problems. And I, came to understand that they were problems for a lot of people with a lot of businesses. And, uh, and so I became very interested in, in essentially the, the kind of science, the process behind how to become a recognized expert in your business and then how to build a lucrative business with multiple income streams. And, um, I, you know, I, I think sometimes people who are successful uh, you know, of course, the roots vary, but but sometimes there are kind of paths to success where, you know, let's say somebody's worked at a, at a high level consulting firm for a long time, and then they become an entrepreneur, and you know, voila, they have a lot of really lucrative clients because they made all these connections. Okay, um, there's not a lot that you can learn from that if you are not that person or not in that circumstance, and so I feel uh, glad and proud that I have been able to help people really figure out from, from square one, how they can build successful, thriving businesses in that way. Because for me, the commitment is about just opening up the discourse. It's just opening up things to new voices. I don't, I don't want it to be a situation where the loudest voices win or the best connected person, uh, wins. And I want it, I want the best ideas to win, but that can only happen if people, understand that there is a process that they need to grasp in order to get their ideas out there and they're willing to to work for that. Um, but if they are, I want to make that information available. Sure. So yeah, that, that idea of square one, that, that kind of brings it all full circle for me, understanding what reinventing you ultimately probably means is that, you know, you really had uh, you you did reinvent yourself in the sense that you you started to work in a realm that 
kind of demands connections and or a, a strong network of some sort. And you were able to identify the importance of that and subsequently succeed. So now what you're doing with other folks is telling them, okay, if you are seeking to switch up, you know, your realm of expertise, or if you're moving from one industry to another, whatever it is, you kind of have to identify the most important aspects of that new arena and, and build yourself up in that way. That's kind of your reinvention idea, but you're also able to help folks who are already, you know, strong experts enhance their voices and take them to that highest echelon of recognition as well. That's right. Yes. Okay. So, so you're working with people at a lot of different levels, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exciting for me uh, to to be able to work with a, a breadth of people. I mean, I um, just yesterday, you know, as we're recording this, um, just yesterday, I did a strategy session here in New York with a client of mine who's the CEO of the largest media company in Puerto Rico. And so, you know, you you have a lot of cool corporate clients. I mean, I've worked with people who are C-level executives at, you know, multi-billion dollar Silicon Valley companies. Um, But I also, uh, you know, through different offerings that I have, you know, things like my online course or workshops that I do, I might work with somebody that is a nascent entrepreneur. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's cool to get to see people at different phases of of the – life cycle of their businesses. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I can tell you that's, that's perfect material for the Mentor Box uh, membership as well. The subscribers are incredibly diverse. We have people who are young students, as young as you were when you started to realize your own vision, to high-level CEOs as well that subscribe. So I think people are going to be able to take away a lot from what you, what you teach. Before we sign off here, I want to give you a chance to... Uh, give a shout out to whatever it is that you want people to to know about you or if you want them to you know find your courses reach out to you directly whatever it is uh you have three books right I do. I do. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, Reinventing You, Stand Out, and Entrepreneurial You. And it's such a pleasure, Tyler, to get to talk to you today. If folks are, are interested in, in learning more, um, my uh, my new book, Entrepreneurial You, I actually have a, a free resource that I created to help people think through how they can create multiple income streams in their own business, which, frankly, I think is uh, is just as important for people who have a day job as well uh, as a form of, uh, of building up, you know, your sort of side hustle and your security. Uh, but certainly for entrepreneurs, it is often a very overlooked, uh, low-hanging fruit in your business to be able to come up with a, with a related new line that can sometimes dramatically increase your income. So if folks are interested in thinking about how they can apply that to their own businesses, uh, they can get their free entrepreneurial use self-assessment. It's 88 uh, questions at doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com slash entrepreneur. Great. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today and chatting. I'm, I was glad to get the opportunity. We have a lot in common and we have a, even similar geographical experiences as well. So this was, this is was a fun conversation for me. That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, 
please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.